Father, we thank you that we are gathered here today to, to hear from your word, your voice. Lord, we pray that we would hear your language, Lord God, not just English, not just the, the Bible, but we would hear the word of God, Jesus Christ, the word that became flesh, and that you would dwell in our hearts today by faith, and that you would transform us into the image of your Son. Lord, I have no sufficiency for the task of conforming any of us to Christ, Lord. You are the one that does it. Would you take these words, would you open this mouth, and would you use it for your glory? And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you would turn in your Bible to Malachi chapter 3, we're going to look at um, a bit of a study today, but it's, I hope it's really going to be practical and helpful. It's, I, I didn't know what to title the message, but... I thought about uh, various things like the scandal of Romans chapter 4 or do you believe in the right God, things like that. So I think you'll get the idea of where we're heading pretty soon. But if you were a first century Jew and you were steeped in the law and the law of Moses and the um, 39 books of the Old Testament, you would come to some basic understandings about humanity and about God that to this day are very well uh, assumed and understood in our culture. Uh, we are often called in America a, a nation based on Judeo-Christian values. So that term, Judeo-Christian, uh, is one that you'll hear bantered about, strangely enough, in politics more than in church. But the concept behind it uh, I looked and did a little bit of research because it, it has to do with our message today. The concept behind calling our country a Judeo-Christian country with a Judeo-Christian heritage and things like that um, really started gaining steam in the 1950s. President Eisenhower and others were, were using that term to kind of uh, coalesce around values, around the Christian ethic or the rule of law and justice in our nation as opposed, as contrasted with communism which was such a huge threat um, through the, the Soviet Union at the time. And, of course, they were a godless, atheistic society where people were not treated in the image of God. But we contrasted that with our country, a Judeo-Christian. Well, now today, it's, it's not so much in an effort to fight the Soviet Union, but it is still a term that you hear a lot. But I began thinking about, is that something that is healthy for churches to consider ourselves of the Judeo-Christian uh, value system, because in one sense, yes, we believe that there is a law that God has set up that is authoritative, and we believe the Word of God is eternal and true, and believe that God is just, and that He does not just uh, excuse sin, that He is holy, and He will demand justice, and He will have the ultimate say in what goes in the world. And how, how much comfort that is whenever we face troublous times, when we face elections that go you know, a wrong way and we're not, not expecting things to, to go for the worst, for example. And, and we know yet God is still sovereign. God is the one that is going to work all these things together for good so we can have hope. We're in a kingdom that lasts forever, not just the kingdom of this world, but the kingdom of God which has not yet come. So lift up your heads, your redemption draweth nigh. You see these things at hand and you have hope. But in the midst of that, I think many people in our country and around the world, certainly it was the case in the first century, have a concept of God that is based more on Judaism than it is on Christianity, even though they identify as Christians. They go back to Moses and they kind of get stuck there 
And they aren't actually advancing in God because they're not walking under the blessing of the new covenant. And you see, the term that I'm going to hone in on today that really gripped me is the term godly or the term ungodly. And it's actually a word that's translated various ways, ungodly, wicked, unrighteous. Those, those three words, okay? Um, there is a word in the Greek that we're going to come to that is translated as ungodly in some of your Bibles or unrighteous. And you want to find, just as a little Bible study technique, if you want to find a parallel word in the Hebrew, how do you do that? You have two different languages. How do you find the same word that was used in the Greek and, and then say, okay, here it is being used in the Old Testament? Well, one way you can do that is by looking into the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's something called the Septuagint. When they translated the Old Testament before the time of Christ into the language of the, the people uh, in, in much of the land that spoke Greek, they would use words that we can now say, okay, this word, as it was taken out of the Old Testament, was put into Greek. Here it is. And here it is used in the New Testament in the same Greek. So we can kind of parallel that back to the Hebrew Bible. So there's a word that we're looking for called ungodly, in the New Testament, and we're looking for the same word in the Old Testament, and the point you're going to get at, and I hope in a second here. We found that through the Greek Septuagint, how they translate it. Jesus would have been familiar with that translation of the Hebrew Bible. Paul quoted it. Paul wrote his epistles in Greek. But here we are in the Hebrew, and we're in Malachi chapter 3. So when you get to verse 18, this is what it says. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. What we find here is a basic definition under the old covenant of what a righteous person and a wicked person was. You have one who serves God and you one who, one who does not serve him. The one who serves God is called righteous or godly and the one who does not is called wicked or ungodly. Okay, and this is, this is the word we're looking at. Other usages of this word, we're going to look at a couple of others, but just keep that in mind. So the idea is if you serve God. Now, what does it mean to serve God? Okay, just think about it for a second. And, and to not serve God. This was all in the context of Israel. This was not talking about the Jews versus the Gentiles. Because there, you could be born a Jew, but you could not serve God. And you would be considered wicked here. In fact, most of the Jews down through the ages were considered wicked. If you go back to Ezekiel, you see there in, in chapter thirty, uh, in chapter three of Ezekiel, please, that he's talking about warning the godly or the wicked what they should do. Ezekiel chapter three and verse eighteen says this. This is God speaking. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So you have an ungodly person, a wicked person, and God sends the prophet Ezekiel or any of us, you could apply that to, I suppose. But we are to warn them, turn from your way and live. God is going to judge you for your wickedness. And if they turn from their way, uh, then they have saved their life. If you and I do not warn them, then it says basically God is going to require their soul on our hand. In other words, we're going to also be held culpable for not doing what God has told us to do and warning them 
to turn from their ways. So you have that basic idea. If they'll turn and they'll start doing what is right, then they will live and God will account them as righteous under this concept. It says in verse 20, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have warned him, you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin. And his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning and you have delivered your soul. Very interesting. The man is called a righteous person, but his righteousness is only continuing as long as he continues to do what is righteous. If he goes into sin, he loses his soul. If you don't warn him not to go there, then you are also held accountable. This, this is the system that the Jews would have been brought up under. And it makes sense to us today. In a Judeo-Christian society, if you do what is right, then the government will allow you to live however you like, basically. And you're, and you're, you can have a prosperous wonderful life. You can raise your family in peace. You can advance in your employment. You can um, you know, buy property, buy lands, buy material goods, move, trade, sell, whatever you want, as long as you're obeying the, the law of the land. If you break the law of the land, then the, the judgment will come against you when they catch you, and a good judge is going to put you away if you've done something serious enough for that, and that's what we would expect. So basically, you do right you get the privilege of being a citizen in this Judeo-Christian land. If you do what is wrong, then justice is going to demand the punishment for your life. And we understand that. And we apply that not just to our citizenship on earth, but we think about citizenship in heaven much along the same way sometimes. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of the Psalm, Psalm 1. Maybe some of you all have memorized this one in your past. But how does Psalm 1, the very first of all the, the Psalms, start off? Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. There's our word. Okay? The blessed man is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Okay? Nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. Right? Or stands in the way of sinners. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And his law is meditating day and night. Okay? So in the word of God, but especially for the Jew, the Torah. Meditating on it day and night. Setting it to heart. I've hidden it in my heart. I'm not going to transgress. I'm going to be a righteous person. I'm not going to listen to the counsel of those ungodly, wicked sinners that don't serve God. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to go to the temple. I'm going to keep the feast. I'm going to keep the Sabbath. I'm, not going, to, uh, I'm going to give my tithe. I'm not going to eat the, the uh, unclean food. Serving God, being godly. This is the idea of the Jew that is in first century Rome or in first century Jerusalem. And it says at the end of this, this psalm, by the way, uh, verse 5, Therefore the wicked or the ungodly will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. Now, who is Psalm 1 speaking of? Is it speaking of David? Is David a man that never uh, walked in the path of sinners? Is David a man that was, was godly his whole life, that always was, was, was faithful to keep the, the law? No. We know he wasn't. What, who, who is Psalm 1 speaking of? Who's the blessed man? Well, okay, yes, we're Christians. So, so we're going to actually now step away from Judaism and we're going to step into Christianity and realize the only fulfillment of this psalm from beginning to end is Jesus Christ, the perfect man. 
the godly man, the righteous man who never walk in the counsel or never uh, stood in the way of sinners, never, never uh, did anything but delight in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season and his leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Everything Jesus did prospered to the consternation of those that were his opponents and his enemies. Even in his death, he prospered. Look at the fruit that's come out of it. But the wicked are not so. And, and so, you know, but in the mind of most people, I, in, in, representing most people, I am in the camp of, of the, the righteous. I am in the camp of the good person. I am in the camp of the one who is going to prosper. I'm not the wicked. I'm not an ungodly person. Okay, here's, here's our mindset. But there is always a hint towards the new covenant in the old. You look at one more scripture, Isaiah chapter 53. The beautiful prophetic testimony of Jesus, the Lamb of God who was going to be slain. Isaiah 53 and verse 9, it speaks of the cross of Christ, of course. And it, and it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. And what we see here is the suffering servant of, of Isaiah 53 makes his grave with the ungodly. He's not far from him. He's right there with him. We know it even testifies that on the cross, there was an ungodly man on his right and an ungodly man on his left. One of the men was in paradise with Jesus hours later. How could that happen? I thought the wicked shall perish like the chaff that the wind blows away. How could a wicked man, you know, be there at Jesus' death and continue into eternity? He made his grave with the wicked. It says in Isaiah 55, 7, this gives us some insight. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon so there is the cry that is, even if you've lived a wicked life, you can forsake your way and your thoughts and you can return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. Now, what are the chances that a man is going to return to the Lord and the Lord is going to have compassion on him if he doesn't think he's ungodly, if he doesn't think he's done anything really that bad, if he doesn't consider himself as wicked? When we get to the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul writing around 55, 60 AD, is addressing a mixed congregation, a congregation that is made up of Jews and Gentiles in the uh, very significant city of Rome. So in Rome, you have people coming in with their Jewish culture who were steeped in the idea that blessed is the godly man, I will be a godly man, I will obey the law, and I will meditate on day and night, and that is how I please God. I will serve God, and I will be accounted as a righteous man. And then you have the Gentiles who knew they were coming out of unrighteous backgrounds, who knew they, were, they had no Judeo-Christian heritage. They simply had paganism, idolatry, sexual immorality, and all sorts of evil, wicked ways. And they come to Christ who says, I will abundantly pardon you. And they say, that sounds pretty good. I think I need this. It wasn't too hard for them to come and accept the good news because they realized their lives did not reflect what their conscience told them was right. Every single person, it says in Romans chapter 2, has a conscience that says it's wrong to do these certain things, which are, of course, spelled out in the law. 
It's wrong to murder. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to commit adultery. It's wrong to steal. It's, 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 it's wrong to do the things that our conscience from a very young age tells us, but yet we do it anyway. So we carry around a heavier and heavier burden of guilt, and we try to knock that burden off by escapism, by drink, by escapades and all sorts of more immorality that just lead us heavier and heavier. But in the gospel, there is a burden lifter that comes to meet us there. And he says, give me your burden and I will give you mine. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me and I will show you what a light, easy road it is to walk yoked to me. But you have to give me your burden. And for the Gentiles, that wasn't such a hard step because they said, yes, you'll take my sin. Thank you, Jesus. I will take your burden. I will yoke with you and and care about what you care about and walk your path. But for the Jew, the burden had to do as much, not just with their sin, but with their legalism. And they were hesitant to give it to God, to say, you mean all my righteousness is really just filthy rags. No, I'd rather stay under this burden. Peter called it a burden that neither we nor our fathers could stand up under. And yet the Judaizers, even after Christ had come, were still trying to put this on the Gentiles. You must be circumcised. You must not eat these foods. You must keep the Sabbath. And once you get one of those conditions into the church, they're all going to follow at that point. Because there's no stopping once you bring in legalism to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well... My concern, and this is my own experience, I don't look at a George Barna survey to figure out what is the condition of those that identify as Christians, because I talk to people all the time at LSU, for example, that identify as Christians, and I just ask questions, and I take my own surveys, and I would say roughly 90% or more people have the wrong concept of God, and the problem with this is that if you don't know who you're believing in, how can you be saved? If you don't know God which is eternal life, how can you go to stand before him and pass through judgment into eternal life when you die? And I'm meeting Christian after Christian in name that are coming to me telling me they believe that their God is going to justify those that do right and is going to condemn those that do wrong. Or you can put it in other words, he is going to declare godly those that serve him and he is going to declare ungodly those that do not serve him. Just like it said in Malachi. Now their definition of what does it mean to serve God may vary from culture to culture, tradition to tradition, church to church. But it's still the mentality that is bringing Moses into Christianity. You ask them, do they believe that Jesus is the son of God? Oh yeah, yeah. Do they believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. Oh, well then they're saved, right? No. Why? Because they also believe in the God that justifies godly people and condemns ungodly people, and they're hoping to be a godly person that God will justify. I say all this to set up the scandal of Romans chapter 4. When Paul is preaching not only just to Gentiles but to Jews and and, and writing this letter to a church he's never been to, but he knows some of the issues that are going on there because he faced them every church he went to. Galatia had this problem. Colossae had this problem. The Corinth church had this problem. The Philippians were facing it. Every single church was facing this, this pull back to legalism, and we are facing it today. F&T church has this problem. I'm not saying it's apparent. I'm just saying it is in every single church because 
people make up the church. It's I have this problem. You have this problem. We are going to get our concept of God twisted by the culture and by the traditions and by our own sinful nature if we are not constantly reminding ourselves of what the gospel really is. And it says in Romans 4, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Read that again carefully with me. The one who works. This is just taking something in society, something that's natural to all cultures. If you work for an employer, you get your wage. You earn your paycheck. Okay, so that is the way that society functions. That's the way it functions under law. That's the way it functions under capitalism and most any other society. The one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. I don't give gifts to my employees at the end of the week and say, oh, this is, thank you for coming to work at my farm. Here, I'd like to give you a cake. They would be insulted by that. They want their money. They want the exact amount that they earn based on their hours. So I give them to them and they come back the next week. But if, if, if you think that's a gift, you're mistaken. What is a gift? A gift is I gave them the cake after I gave them their wages that they were due. Okay, so we come to God and we think, God, I hope that I can earn heaven based on what I've put in for you. I went to church. I didn't commit adultery. I told my neighbor about this function we were having. I, you know, paid my taxes. I gave to the Red Cross. You, know, you can go on down the line. For people that aren't religious, they have their own standards of good. And evil, you know, I, I treat my own, you know, I, with respect, I honor the man, you know, I, I don't, <clears throat> I don't lie to certain people, of course I lie to them, but they deserve it, I only steal from rich people, I don't steal from the poor, you know, so you can, you can begin to justify your behavior as righteous enough to qualify for God's favor, and it says, well, this is the one that God is going to actually justify, verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Did you catch that? That the God that we are to believe in is the one that justifies the ungodly. And we've read it, but have we actually stopped to consider what that means? It means two very significant things. Number one, God is no longer looking for righteous people to save because he already scanned the earth throughout the centuries and he found there were none that qualified except Jesus. That's why it says a few verses earlier in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, not one. That was written in the Old Testament, by the way. Jews should have read that and realized, wait a second, if that be the case, then why am I trying to earn my way with God? Well, if there is none righteous, then God has to look at all the unrighteous people, all the ungodly people, all the wicked people, and say, okay, are there any here that I can save? Well, let me set up the conditions. Keep the Ten Commandments? Mm. Love your neighbor as yourself? Mm. I haven't found anyone. Love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength? Nope. How about this condition? They believe in a God that will... Declare them righteous even when they're wicked. Okay. I like that condition because anyone can qualify. But very few are going to trust in that kind of a God. 
because it requires humility on my part. It actually requires me to qualify for it by recognizing myself as ungodly. So, Lord, I'm not such a holy roller. I'm not good in your eyes. I don't deserve heaven. I am asking for you to give me what I don't deserve and to not give me what I do deserve. And that that stumbles our faith many times because we say, I, I, it sounds too good to be true. And God says you have to trust in that kind of a God to be justified. If you can overcome your natural inclination to reject that offer of grace, that gift, and, 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 and overcome your natural inclination to say, no, I, I still got to do something, don't I? If you can overcome that and believe in this God, he says, stop working, just rest in me, trust in me, then hey, you can have righteousness. In fact, just like Abraham in Genesis 15, who believed God and God accredited to his account for righteousness, you and I follow in the same footsteps. We are gifted the righteousness of God. It's not the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, which were the holiest Jews in this day. They kept the law. Paul said outwardly there was no one that could, could accuse me of being a transgressor of the law. And I believe him when he said that. He kept the Torah. He was faithful. There was murder in his heart. There was lust and idolatry and covetousness in his heart. And he said the law smote him when he began to look at it. But outwardly, he was a law keeper. But this is the point. When he came to the realization that he was an ungodly man, that he was only fit for hell, that he was going to be condemned, and Jesus was saying, why do you persecute me? And he said, God, who are you? He said, I am Jesus. He realized that's the Lord the one that came for the ungodly. And suddenly Paul had the revelation, not the intellect, but the revelation. He came for a sinner like me. Paul never thought of himself as a sinner. Now many people out there will acknowledge, oh, I'm a sinner, everyone's a sinner, and there's no one perfect out there. But the point of this matter is, the God that justifies ungodly people is who we must believe in. So I find that most of the people I meet that declare themselves as Christian or non-Christian, either way, this conversation is something we need to have. This is a conversation I would challenge each of you to have with your children, with your spouse, with your parents, with your grandchildren, with your neighbor, okay, that goes to the Baptist church and you assume, well, they're, they're good, they're going to the church, right? Um, how do you know? This is one of those, it's one of those revelations to me. When I ask someone, do you consider yourself to be a good person? I'm not just following a, a method of evangelism. I'm asking a question that reveals where they stand on this issue. I've already established by that point if they believe in God or not, okay? And, and most of the time they say yes, or I believe in a higher power. But to then put yourself in the picture and say, well, where do you stand in God's estimation? Are you good? Are you a good person? Are you a godly person, as they would say? Blessed is the godly man. The godly person is the one that serves God. Okay? That's what it says in the Old Testament. Having flunked that, what hope is there for me to qualify for heaven? Because it says very early on in the book of Deuteronomy, this is, this is one more verse that we don't really think about too much today, but they would have understood off the top of their heads. Deuteronomy 25, I'm looking at verses 1 and 2. 
I think we understand it because the Judeo-Christian, here we lean towards the ethic of law. If there is a dispute between men and they come into a court and the judges decide between them acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten. And again, this is the word that we use for ungodly. So here you have two men come into the court and they're deciding who is the innocent man and who is the guilty. You acquit the innocent or the godly or the righteous and you condemn the guilty, the ungodly man. And it goes on to set parameters for that. You don't beat him beyond this many stripes, but he's going to get something. That makes sense. That is totally reasonable to every single one of us and to all the people out there. You get what you're... So, so how do we break that wall down? I don't have time to go through all the, the, the verses, but you have to understand that when you get to Romans chapter, chapter uh, 4, Paul is not just starting out at the beginning of the book, Right? There's, there's many, many statements before Romans chapter 4, verse 5, where he makes this landmark pivot to say, there is a God that justifies ungodly people, and only faith in that God will make you righteous, will give you the righteousness that will stand on the day of judgment, the righteousness of Christ. Only believing in that God can save you. Which means, if you're believing in another God, or the God that justifies godly people, you're not saved. That's how I lived for 27 years. I believed in Jesus. I believed in God. I believe I went to church. I thought I was a good person, and I thought God would give me what I deserve when I die, which I hoped, had no assurance, I hoped was heaven. And you start talking to people out there, you'll find that is what they're raised in in America, that is what they believe, and that is what we are here to rescue them from. Self-righteousness. Paul goes through chapter 1, breaking down the self-righteousness of the Gentiles. Goes through chapter 2 of Romans, breaking down the self-righteousness of the Jews. Now we get to chapter 3, and they're all in the same boat. They're all heading out over Niagara Falls in the same boat with no paddle, going to condemnation. What is the hope? What is the lifeline that can rescue them? See, he had to get them to the point where they realized their need for a God that would justify the ungodly before they would call out for his salvation. And that's the same thing with us. If we just tell people, God loves you, God has sent his son to die on the cross, they say, oh, that's nice, great. And they'll continue on their way, trying their best to please whatever God may exist. If we tell them, on the other hand, these truths. There is none righteous. You are not going to get into heaven by your righteousness. You don't seek for God. You don't understand him. You have turned aside. Consider your ways, friend. Consider your ways, my son, my daughter. Have you loved God with all your heart, mind, and strength? Have you never told a lie? Do you not realize what God sees in our hearts? All these sexual imaginations, all the pride, all the bitterness, unforgiveness, all the times we blasphemed, do you not know that he holds that in a record somewhere and that none of us are going to escape a just judgment? And yet the Bible goes on to say that this God is just and at the same time a justifier of them who believe in Jesus. He can be just. He can 
legally allow us to walk out of the courtroom on the day of judgment, to, to, to bypass the great white throne where all the books with all of our rebellion and all of our thoughts and all of our actions, he can say, you just go right on by. My mom is here. She loves just going right to the front of the line whenever we get, get somewhere we had a line. And that's what God's going to do. He's going to say, no, you see that long line? That's, that's the vast majority of, of humanity. You are my child. Go right on into the reward seat of Christ. How can God be just doing that? I'm not a better person than the people in that line. I'm not a, I haven't done more righteous deeds. I don't deserve it. How can he be just? Because he carried out the punishment for my sin, for your sin already. He put it on Jesus. That's how. There was a legal action that took place at the cross. The punishment that you... This is nothing new, but I want you to get this, and I want you to be able to explain this to those that don't understand it. The punishment that you and I deserved was placed upon his son, who was undeserving, who was godly, who was the righteous one the only one. He took it. He declared, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the, as the darkness covered the land at high noon and God turned his face away as the song says, but we know that in that moment, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Why? So we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You and I needed righteousness. He said, I'll take your sin. You can have mine. That's the great exchange that will get you into heaven. And his final words on that cross, tetelestai, paid in full, John 19.30. He knew what he was doing and he did it completely. He paid the debt that we owed God. So God can be just in allowing those to walk free who have put their trust in the substitute. Jesus took your punishment. Because I deserved the cross. I was ungodly. I am still not righteous enough outside of Christ. Because the righteousness that I have now is not a self-righteousness. The righteousness you have now received as a gift is His. That's why, where's boasting? Where's, where's, where's the glorying in man? Where's the boasting in me or in my church or in my evangelism or my preaching? It is excluded by what law? Bible says it right there in Romans a law of works, Romans 3.27, is that, is that the law that's going to come down and say, thou shalt not boast? No, there was no law that said thou shalt not boast because the law, when you keep it by nature, stirs up pride. And God knew the heart of man being deceitfully wicked, being desperate, could not be delivered from pride. He did not make a law. He instead sent his son and sent the spirit of God. And now, the law of Christ sets you free. It says the law of faith in Christ excludes boasting. Oh, don't you love the gospel of Jesus Christ? He set it up in such a way that anyone can be saved who hears this and believes in it. And if anyone is saved, they have nothing to boast in but Jesus. No one to boast in but Christ and the cross and the resurrection. That's what we glory in. Praise God. This is the, the foundation. So Paul, entering into a, a legal act, the, the cross of Christ, is building a legal case. That's what Romans is. It's point by point. I'm not, I'm not a law. I don't have any lawyer lingo on me, so I don't even know how to describe this. But 
People have said it's like he was going to court with all the evidence, point after point after point. So it's really not fair for me to start in the middle of chapter 4 and say, look at, look at what the Bible says. If we haven't considered why he can build that case, using Old Testament scriptures nonetheless. So he's not, he's not neglecting the law. He's not saying, oh, the, the old covenant, we're done with that. I'm bringing in something new that's never been taught before. Okay, anyone that does that, we reject them. Joseph Smith brings in the Book of Mormon. It's something different. It's something unbiblical. It's something no one's ever taught before. It has no history. It has no connection with the scriptures. We reject it. We don't pray about it and say, oh, I wonder if I can get a good feeling that confirms it. No, we reject it outright because it comes out of left field and it has no connection with the scriptures. Everything on Paul's list here that he is building a case for is connected to the scriptures, is connected to reality, is connected to the human condition, and gives the solution that is not just for Jewish people, but is for the entire world for all time. And that is faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus. He quotes David in chapter 4, just as David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. David knew the blessed man was not himself, and yet he looked forward to a day when he could say, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This was the faith that David had, that there was a blessed man whom the Lord would not count his sin, because that man in Christ has no sin. The sins are already paid for. It's completed. Now, David believed that God could actually forgive your lawless deeds, but Paul says God will count or accredit righteousness to you apart from works. He took it a step further than David because he went back to Abraham. He didn't, go, he didn't start writing new stuff. David was under the law, and he had the, the hope that God... I believe that I'm a blessed man if you'll forgive my transgressions and my iniquities because I know I committed that adultery. I know I sent that man to get murdered. I know I've been proud. I know I've done all these things. And, 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 and he, he had trust in God and God rewarded him that and he offered up the animal sacrifice. But before the old covenant was even established, Abraham comes along and believes God and God accredits him for righteousness. So you get more than forgiveness. You get justified. As an ungodly person, you are declared righteous. I mean, yes, de declare him. Tell people this good news. This is truly good news. The goal and the challenge that I always find is getting people to the point where they will appreciate it like you and you and you and you appreciate it. Because until you come to the point where you realize what you really are in yourself and what God has rescued me from, we don't appreciate it. We don't realize how good he is and how good this gospel really is, this message. It's not too good to believe. It's that I have to realize I'm too bad to save myself. Then I'll believe in the God that saves the ungodly. That's it. So to get someone to that point, ask the Holy Spirit to teach you how. Whether it's a young person, whether it's a coworker, whether it's a student, whether it's an elderly person about to meet their maker. We need wisdom in this. We need the Holy Spirit's anointing in this, but we need to talk to them. Do not assume that anyone in your life, just because they go to church, they've always been in church, they've always read their Bible, they uh, give to Christian missions, they go here. Don't assume that they understand where their righteousness comes from 
until you've actually talked to them about it. And again, it's one thing to have an intellectual head filled with Christian doctrine and proper answers. If you were raised in the church, you probably have that. It's a whole other thing to get the revelation that he who knew no righteousness became sin for me, that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. God, you have made me what I am not in myself, and I have nothing to boast in. That's a revelation, y'all. Everything in this world, everything in the religious spiritual system works against it, but God in a moment can secure you in his kingdom by teaching you Christ. Learn of him. Amen. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, working, trying, and not succeeding, and I will give you rest. I will finish your work, and in a moment I will reveal to you that it is done. Religion says, do, do, do this, do that. Christ says, it is done. Which do you choose? Father, I thank you that you have given us good news indeed. No matter what we face in this world, no matter how hard the days ahead or the days behind us have been, you have done one sacrifice that for all time has settled the issue of righteousness, has settled the issue of heaven and hell, has settled the issue of justice. And now you are both just and the justifier of those who believe in your son Jesus. And uh, I, along with all these here, declare you merciful, gracious, good, true, worthy of all praise. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? You are worthy, God. We can't wait till we stand before you, before your throne. We, we, we stand with all the saints who all have come by one way and one way alone. The blood of the Lamb. And faith in that atoning sacrifice. Thank you, you've made it so simple. Thank you, you've made it so complete. Thank you, you've made it so accessible and available. But Lord, we know that we have the responsibility not to keep this to ourselves, but to blaze it abroad, Lord God, to share it with others from whatever walk of life that we happen to cross. No, Lord God, we don't need an event to tell someone this good news. We just need a divine appointment. Lord, we're asking right now that you would give us those appointments in the week ahead and that we would not shrink back from the opportunity to share the best news in the world with those who are trusting in their own righteousness. We pray that you will help their hearts to turn to you and that we can add to your kingdom souls for your glory and for your honor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.